Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome back to The X Factor, the podcast for leaders by leaders. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a very interesting topic and very topical. Uh, we're going to talk about leadership and artificial intelligence. And I reached out to uh, a good friend and somebody who's been on the podcast before, uh, Lieutenant General Bert Field. Bert, how are you today? Doing great, Steve. Good to see you again. Good to see you. So, uh, Bert and I both read um, a book called Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age, written by uh, Ed Hess, who is a, um, uh, a professor emeritus from uh, the University of Virginia Darden School of Business and Catherine Ludwig. And I think what the book did is it really resonated with uh, both Bert and I. Um, in terms of leadership, but also this, um, you know, this this game changing technology that we're all dealing with, and um, uh, and I'm sure this goes for uh, just about all the listeners of the X Factor as they spent uh, considerable time and energy looking into AI this year. And um, I know I have. I know I've listened to a lot of podcasts and read some. Uh, uh, you read, read read quite a few articles and a couple of books. And Bert, how about you? Did you did, did you invest some time and energy into artificial intelligence? I did. I did invest some time, you know, and uh, not just watching Terminator One again. So I actually <laughs> tried to figure out some of the different types of AI and and read a couple books on it. But I would say I am far from being an expert and not even that good of a conversationalist about it. But well, I'm more. I don't think anybody's an expert, uh, except for the people who are developing it, um, and because it's you know, it just sprang upon us this year, uh, so nobody can I don't think can be considered an expert. But you know we are, um, you know we're 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 certainly on the cutting edge of looking at this. And one of the things I've learned in. Uh, you know, in preparing for this interview, but also just reading about it over the year, is that there's um, one of the types of AI is called general AI, and you know this is a this is this is this is a machine that understands and learns any intellectual task that humans can, and this is basically what Chat GPT is, and I guess the G means for stands for generic, but where where um, uh, AI really got its propelled itself into the mainstream was I think back in 2015 or 2016, and um, uh, the, the uh, there's a, a world champion of a uh, board game called Go, which you're probably familiar with because you've been all around the world. It's not very popular here in the United States, but it's popular just about everywhere else, and it's considered to be even more. Uh, complex than chess. Yes. Right. And uh, the machine beat the world champion uh, four games to one. And it was interesting in the dynamic, the machine won the first three games very easily. And then the human uh, adapted uh, his strategy and basically just did everything opposite of what he would have done. And it confused the machine. And so therefore the human won the fourth game, but then the machine learned and the machine came back and won the fifth game. Yeah. And I think the other thing about that was that the, that machine learned Go by itself. Yeah. It, didn't, it didn't practice with any any human prior to, to doing this with that world champion, if my memory serves. Right. So that was another big change. And Go is such a different game than chess. I, I Chess is very, you know, can be very complex but there's only a certain number of moves and and it's basically you're trying to, to to beat the adversary and in go it has a little bit different mindset and it's more about gaining a positional advantage so that you have the adversary just say okay you win yeah and you know back way back in 1997 um the technology that uh, Deep Blue used to beat Gary Kasparov was is called a, a reactive machine, which only works with present data. 
And where, you know, when you play chess, you're, you know, you're, you're thinking about what you've done and you're thinking about what your opponent has done and then what you might do. And then certainly what might your opponent do. So you're constantly moving from uh, past, present and future time orientations where the machine was just focused on the present. And so the machine does not store memories or use past experiences to determine future actions. It just focused on what Kasparov just did and then came up with a million or so options. Right. So, yeah. You know, and, and it still beat Kasparov playing a completely different kind of game. So we're, yeah. we're, we're facing a technology here that, you know, that really appears to be a game changer. So when I, when I read the, you know, the Hessen Ludwig book, I, I kept on thinking about you and your, uh, you know, your career transitions, because it's so unusual, um, you know, to, I think, to go from an F-16 fighter pilot, which is a fairly individualized task, you have a support group on the, te- uh, on the ground, but basically up there, it's, it's a single seater plane, correct? Correct. Yeah. So you're making all the decisions and you're, you're executing all the, uh, all the strategies, but then, as you moved on to your career, you know, throughout your career to rise to a three-star general, your your mindset had to change. And I think I'm just really curious about how, you know, how that occurred and and you know how you how you how you did that. Yeah. So um I was fortunate enough to be early on in the F-16. And um because the F-16 was just fielded around the time I graduated from pilot training. And so that was back in 1980. And so I was one of the first young guys to get a chance to fly that that great airplane. And um, one of the things that was going on in the Air Force and in the military at the time is we were transitioning from what they used to call third or what we call third generation airplanes to fourth generation airplanes. Fourth generation airplanes are F-15s and F-16s and F-18s and the F-14 maybe uh, in there as well. And what what that did is it brought in more computer. It brought in more capability. It brought in a better radar system that gave more information to the pilot and the crews. Um, It brought in better weapons that we were able to employ at the time. And it caused us to change us in the Air Force to change the way we think about fighter aviation and all the what it's capable of doing. And so when you go and start learning that, um, one of the things, and this is very applicable to today, is that when you go up and fight in a fighter, it is fast. Like you can't believe how fast it is. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, when we used to go against other other airplanes, um, you're flying at each other like this from you know many miles away, mm-hmm. and so you have the F-16 radar was not the best in the world, so our contacts would show up at about 20 miles. Okay. Now, when you're closing, you're closing so fast um, that you're closing probably almost at you're going to be at what 20 miles you're going to be at the merge as we call it in one minute yeah, where you could actually crash into the other yeah, yeah yeah so now remember that you have long range some longer range missiles at the time they weren't that big but you had to decide make all your decisions by 10 miles mm-hmm. because if you decided to run away bravely but run away mm-hmm. you had to do it by the 10 mile point so that gave you 30 seconds from 20 miles to 10 miles to figure out what was going on, make a decision and act on the decision. So, and, and you're not by yourself, although you're by yourself in the airplane, you're normally flying with people. You're flying with a wingman and you're flying with another element and that's called a four ship flight. And then you can add more four ship flights to that depending on the scenario. But the key thing of this is that you had to, all of the people in your side had to build that same picture in their head. So they had to understand the environment and orient themselves correctly. We all had to have that the same way. And then we all had to be able to execute the game plan based on, 
on what we had talked about in the mission brief planning and mission briefing. And then if something different happened, we had to be able to react to that different happening in order to be successful. And all while you're flying 400 to 500 miles an hour and your opponent's flying four to 500 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And so what that taught me is that for you to be successful in that execution at speed, it required incredible mission planning and teamwork before you ever stepped into the jet. And so I think today for leaders, what they need to understand is that the environment is so much faster than it used to be. Um, your competitors are doing something, they're executing some strategy and they're doing it fast. And the world is changing at a faster rate. And AI is providing the impetus for a lot, some of this speed-driven uh, business that's going on. But the key to being successful is that being able to sit back and think and plan and anticipate what's likely and what and what all the uh, likely offshoots or possible offshoots could be and how you're going to react to that in the future. So <clears throat> when I, you know, so I spent uh, about 10 years doing nothing but flying airplanes and going up, up in rank. And then I, and then um, later on, you're, you're given an opportunity to command at the squadron level. So we had about 30 people in a squad in a single seat squadron, about, 70 in a, in a two-seat squadron, fighter squadron. And other squadrons are bigger, much bigger than that. My son uh, was a maintenance officer or is a maintenance officer and has commanded squadrons of 800 people, um, you know, much earlier in his career than I commanded a squadron of 30. But so, but now you have to say, what kind of leadership um, can I take from, being a fighter pilot and applying it to being an organizational leader. Now we're still focused on the same thing. We're still focused on, you know, producing fighter pilots that are able to go out and do the nation's uh, work. And so that, so it was still very much what I was familiar with, but it required me to start thinking about how do I, how do I move the squadron forward? Not just how do I get through this mission you know, this hour, hour and a half mission today. It's, you know, how do I move the far, squadron forward? How do I make sure that all of the people in the squadron are armed with these kind of skills that are going to make them successful? And I think this is where, when I read that book, um, Humility, that, that you recommended to me, a lot of it um, really started to hit home because I remember, you know, in different phases of my career, how this was applicable. So, back then in the military, very hierarchical, you know, you know, somebody outranks you, you got to call them sir or ma'am. They get to give you orders and, you know, that's the way it is. And in some extreme cases, you know, you're ordering men and women out to risk their lives to, to in battle. So, um, that requires a lot of different leadership skills and we've trans we've evolved the what our thinking is in the military on what that leadership skill set should be. And along this journey from basic fighter pilot to squadron commander, I went through series of professional military education that the Air Force uh, puts everybody through, and so do the other uh, services. So there's a one at the captain level, one at about the major level, and one at the Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel level. And one of the focus in all of those is leadership. And, you know, in the eighties and nineties and on into this century, um, the idea of leadership started to change a little bit. And it was in, in business, you know, Tom Peters uh, came out and um, Japan started doing some things in the eighties and nineties that people liked. And, uh, Peter Drucker, who you mentioned yesterday when we were chatting about this, uh, they came out with, hey, here's a better way to, to lead. But it goes back to, hey, you, you need a couple things. First off, you need to have a good relationship with 
the people you're leading. And second off, you have to have trust and trust in them. And they have to have trust in you in order to come up and be successful in these kind of environments. So um, if I was mission planning with my flight, the other three people in my flight, and I didn't let them say anything, and we just came, I just did my plan because I knew I was right all the time, then I don't get the benefit of them. I don't get them to challenge any of my bias. And I don't probably come up with the best plan because those are three highly qualified, really smart people that are actually in this with me. And the reason it's so serious is that in combat, there's no grades. It's pass fail. Yeah. You're, you either come back and do it again tomorrow or you don't. Mm-hmm. And so it's that's pretty motivational to be good and to be better than your possible opponents. And so the only way that you can really be good is to build a highly functioning team. And that team requires trust and it requires good relationships so that in the air, if I don't see something and my wingman or the other element says, hey, we've missed this part over here. I need to be able to say instantly accept that and act on it. Or I have to instantly accept it and let them act on it. Mm-hmm. Well, that was one of the core tenets, you know, of the authors. Right. Is that, you know, now that AI is here and it it certainly has proven that humans will never know as much as a machine. Okay. So we need other people to help us to be more creative and to be better critical thinkers uh, because AI still hasn't mastered that. And there, and AI certainly isn't very good at the uh, at collaboration and relationship building. Right. So, you know, so 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 how did that, you know, you know that experience from being a a fighter pilot to now being a squadron commander, then how how did you evolve? Uh, your yeah. Skill? So so then you're you're very familiar with all of what goes on in a fighter squadron. And you spend your average fighter pilot will spend, you know, 12 to 15 years in a squadron. And that's what they do. Right. Now, as you go up to the next levels and you become, you know, what we call a wing commander. Now, a wing is normally can be around, you know, two, three or four thousand people. Okay. And for example, as a wing commander, uh, I was a wing commander three times, one time in combat over in Iraq. And I had an average of 25 to 28 squadrons working for me. Now, there's probably three or four fighter squadrons. And then there's three maintenance squadrons. There's three or four medical squadrons. There's four or five um, mission support squadrons. And so we have a gamut of medical civil engineers, personnel, security forces, different kinds of maintenance, flight line, back shop, supplies in, involved there, munitions and weapons. Um, so now we're talking about base defense, runway repair, keeping up with you know the infrastructure of your base. Um, for example, how often do you need to cut the grass? on the base. And that's, you know, a decision you have to make just like how much, how many sorties are you going to fly every week? Right. And then you have to blend that all of those, all of those people have to build a team in order for the, anybody to be successful. Okay. So at this point, what rank are you? A Colonel, a Colonel and a one-star general. Okay. All right. So that would be, uh, so, so to, to help the listeners, equate you know military ranks with you know corporate ranks uh what would you consider to be entry level would you consider that to be lieutenant and captain or yes okay and then middle management would be uh, major and lieutenant colonel lieutenant colonel and then senior executive would be colonel and above yeah starting that's you know colonel and one star the transition you know some of them are senior some of them are still the top end of middle management Okay. And so you found that you were, you know, that, that you develop 
you know, some of these interpersonal skills as a, um, you know, as an F-16 pilot by working right. with the other pilots, but then they needed to expand the with each rank that you that you attained. Yeah. Okay. And so for example, um, you know, I'm responsible for, you know, all of those people. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I need out of all of those people for that wing to be successful is for them to do their jobs. And if I want the wing to be the best wing around, they have to do their jobs better than their contemporaries across the air force. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there, you can stand up and say, do your jobs better than all your contemporaries around the air force. And if you don't, I'm going to be mad at you, or you can go figure out how do you, what else you need so that you can do your job better than all the people in the air force. Mm -hmm. And just asking that question, you know, really opened my eyes because they're going to tell you, if you're approachable, if you build a relationship, and if they trust you that you're not going to leap down their throats because of they said something that you disagree with. So I used to always, and it took a while, so whenever I would come into a new organization, uh, as I got to be more senior, certainly at the wing commander level, and, uh, you know, squadron commander, there's a level between that and and, uh, wing and then the wing commander level, I would, one of the things I would tell people is, look, I think I'm right. When I say something, I think I'm right. Mm -hmm. And I assume that when you say something, you think you're right also, because we don't say stuff that's wrong and say, look, I'm saying something wrong so I can look like a dumbass. (laughs) So I think I'm right. Mm -hmm. So if all you ever do is agree with me, Mm -hmm. then I really don't need you guys. Because I'm right. What I need you for is to tell me I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And when you tell me I'm wrong, guess what? I'm probably not going to believe you because I already think I'm right. So we're going to have to have an argument and you have to be able to argue with me. And so what that takes is first off, they don't believe it. So you have to get somebody to argue with you and then you have to lose the argument in public. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they go, oh, okay, I can convince, I can get him to come yeah. back off the ledge. Yeah. I can get him to, to do the right thing. I can get him to change his mind. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it. But and, that's just how important mental models are, right? Because you're, you're asking them to challenge your mental models because you think you're right based on how you're seeing the problem, right. right? But you're asking for feedback to see if they can shift your mental model. But that takes a tremendous amount of humility. And one of the things that really stuck with me through the, um, you know, the Hessen-Ludwig book was how they differentiated between humility and modesty, and humility is outward focused, is that you're showing humility by asking people to challenge your thinking, right? But modesty is inward focused, and it's, you know, it's a false humility, it's a false modesty, if, but it doesn't mean that you're not confident, right? right. We're, you know, we're in, in, in my work, you know, with, with executives, you know, truly, they, they're, they're, they're trying to appear humble, just like, you know, they're trying to appear smart, right? Because that's their, you know, that's their identity. That's who they think they are as, as, as themselves. But they're, but, but they're sacrificing confidence for that. If, right. I can, you know, if I, if I have to be modest and humble, well, then I can't be confident. And what always been very impressive about you, Bert, is that, yes, you're a very humble guy, but you don't show any signs of false modesty. And so that confidence is conveyed to other people. Well, you know, at one point I was the greatest fighter pilot on the planet. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) And every single one of my friends will disagree with me. Yeah, and because they tell, think they're no. the best fighter exactly. pilot. <laughs> exactly. But that breeds a really healthy level of competition. Correct. And that was one, and I was fortunate to be surrounded by literally some of the greatest fighter pilots on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a very early age, I had great leaders. 
I went to the uh, fighter weapons school, which is uh, the Air Force Top Gun School, even though it was came came around before the Navy Top Gun School. Um, and then I was an instructor there, and then I was a commander of the whole thing. And so now you're working with not you're working with zero um, worker bees, and a hundred percent I'm the boss and I'm the right. And I'm right all the time, personalities. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so I learned a lot from, you know, how do I, how do I, because they really, the instructors at the weapons school are fabulous in every discipline of air power. Um, smart, they can execute, they can deliver on what they say. Uh, they not only can talk a good game, they can execute a great game. And so how do you corral all these personalities and get them to kind of go in the right, in the same direction. So it just requires like, again, because to go, they're going to go execute and they're executing it fast. There's a syllabus that's going on in the weapons school and it's, you got to get through it. There's a lot of people that aren't up to the task when they show up because it's the hardest training in the air force. And so they're going to have to repeat missions multiple times and so you have to get, you know, uh, the same kind of mindset in your instructors and the commanders of each one of those units so that they know that their job is not to prove how good they are. Mm -hmm. Their job is to train each class to go out and be the best in the Air Force. Yeah. And again, it's kind of that's that's the difference between humility and modesty almost. And it, it's a similar type of thing. Mm -hmm. And and I view it as. It's just focusing on your mission. What what are you? What is your organization? Why are you around? And you have to focus on that. And it's you know I just use mission because it's a word that I use many for many years in the military, and and most people understand that. But every business has a mission. Every parts of business has a mission. They have jobs that they have to do, you know, over time. And if you focus on mission success instead of personal success, mm -hmm. then you're going to be far, far better down the road personally and as an organization than if you focus on my personal success. And I think that's one of the mental model shifts that needs to occur as far as what the incentives are. Right. And so when I read the book and they talk about, you know, critical thinking and guess what? You probably aren't that critical. And then they talk about, um, you know, innovation, creativity, you know, a really understanding a high, I think, high emotional um, engagement is what they called it. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those words resonate with me because that's what I believe in, in my leadership philosophy. And it goes back to, you know, if you don't build a relationship with somebody and you don't build that trust, you're not going to be able to get any help with all of that stuff. And the other thing, one thing that I think that they, they um, well, I emphasize quite a bit is you can't do all that by yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to have a team to help you do that because there is, there is almost nothing on the planet where, and I don't know of anything. So I just caveat it, but almost nothing where a team doesn't beat an individual. Now you can tell me all the exceptions and I know that, but if I say, I, but my answer will be, that wasn't a very high performing team. Right. And now, I use this example. I say on trivia, my mind is full of useless facts. Not quite as much as an AI, but I'm full of useless facts. So if there used to be a game, Trivial Pursuit, that, you know, people of my age understand. And if I played 1v5 against a team on Trivial Pursuit, I have no doubt in my mind that I would get answers before they would. Mm -hmm. Some answers. I also have no doubt in my mind that at the end of the game, I would be the loser and they would be a winner yeah. because teams beat individuals all the time. Mm -hmm. And if that, and if you have that philosophy and if you believe that, then you should be focused on developing teams and you need to be part of that team. Even as a leader, you need to be part of that team which means there needs to be interaction. There needs to be, you know, give and take. 
there has to be an ability for them to challenge you in the innovation, the creativity, and the critical thinking aspects in that whole, how do we plan to go execute at speed in the environment where we're working in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my father taught me about humility starting in high school. And I don't know exactly how he did it because he was a very, you know, gentle, soft-spoken guy. And he just kind of guided conversations. But I came to the conclusion is that when when you're at 16, you know, when I'm 16, I think I know everything. But And at 17, I know I know everything. Right. (laughs) Okay. And it was, you know, it it was, it it was, it was all in, you know, as a joke, uh, as, you know, in in, in our relationship. And so it it would just kind of check me uh, as if I got off on a tangent as a, you know, 17 year old senior. And that stuck with me, but that evolved into something much more, um, uh, much more pertinent. As I, you know, through my 20s until today is that, you know, the older and older I get, the more and more I realize the less and less I know. Right. Okay. So here's an example. So, you know, if you think about AI and what that's going going to be, what the future is, Mm -hmm. if you're old like me. So when I started in the Air Force, we didn't have computers. Right. Mm-hmm. There was no, I mean, there was computers, but we didn't have desk laptop computers. Yeah. Didn't have desktop computers, much less laptop computers. You had mainframes. Yeah. There yeah. was some computer doing stuff somewhere, but it was I there was a there was a computer me. room. Yeah, but so when when um computers started getting introduced, it started taking over task. And you know, my friends, you know, and us, we go, oh, this this is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And look, I can use this to do a better job scheduling all the people to fly and do all the ancillary jobs every week. Oh, look, I can do a better job tracking bomb scores, how well we all drop bombs and who's the top gun and who's not. I can do a better job mission planning. Oh, look, I can do a better job planning routes and I can do a better job planning how to time my the, how these missions are going to happen. I can I can, I can, I can. Mm -hmm. And so we started changing the way we did it. We started with a big map, a ruler and a pen. Mm -hmm. And that's how you, that's how the mission, and you sat around a big navigation table and you planned out your mission over the area you were going to fly in. And pretty, with computers, you could, you still ended up there, but you didn't have to do all the drudge work. You could do more thinking about what ifs, how, what, what do we think the threat's going to do to us? That's the most likely. What, what other possibilities are there? How many do you think there are? What if there's more? What if there's less? You know, and you could what if and, and, you know, really be critical about your planning so that everybody's on the same page and has sought through as many possible scenarios as possible. And they're comfortable with them all. And that gave us now, when I was, this all started, I was a lieutenant and captain. I got to tell you, lieutenant colonels and colonels, they didn't want anything to do with that. They, I, I don't want anything. I don't, I, whatever. I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. And if we look at AI now, well, I'll tell you, I had this conversation when I was uh, a wing commander of the F-22, which was we just coming brand new into the Air Force. And um, the F-22 is so um i'll let me do this the f-16 is the fourth generation fighter and there's a plane that was built in the 50s called the t-33 and it's a little trainer plane Mm -hmm. i mean there's obviously zero comparison between the two and there was a huge difference t-33 had no radar it had no systems on it it just was a place to fly around and learn how to fly Mm -hmm. And then 20 or 30 years later, the F-22 is come. 25 years later, the F-22 is coming in service. The difference between the F-16 and the F-22 is about twice as much as the difference between the F-16 and the T-33. Okay. So it's an enormous difference. The capabilities are just, mm-hmm. you know, incredible. And so, but young pilots, my young lieutenants were coming in there and they were, they were awesome at this. 
at how they could do it because they're gamers. They all play video games. They all, they're native speakers on computers. They were born with computers and video games and all of that kind of stuff. And so I would, you know, push more responsibility down on them. You know, I would ask the kind of try to get the squadrons to do this. And I got this one squadron commander came up to me and he said, why we can't give these guys so much, you know, autonomy and authority, you know, they're just lieutenants. And I said, look, 20 year old men have been leading people into battle for thousands and thousands of years. I'm not worried about them leading people in battle. I'm worried about you being able to employ that airplane correctly while you're leading men into a battle. And he went, Oh, <laughs> And it wasn't that I was, it wasn't, you know, it sounds bad, but it, but the way in the discussion, you know, it was more of, you know, joking, but it would, but I hit home because you got to go do the work if you're not a native speaker in this stuff. So as we transition to 2023 and beyond, if I'm a leader and I'm old and I'm not a native AI speaker, which is me, this is me a hundred percent. Yeah. Is if I was leading a, a company, I would be grabbing my 20 to 30 year olds and saying, what do you all think about this? Yeah. And what are you all talking about this? And where do you see the possibilities of this? And in order to get people that have already are thinking this way to provide input to make this business better. You know, in my practice, I work with people from college age to our age or maybe even older and um what i find is that the older people are the more resistant they are to artificial intelligence the college students they're all for it they have no fear of it whatsoever but you know the people who run the places are are older so um you know if you were you know to give advice to you know, to leaders about um, how to best to adapt to AI. What what would you tell them? Well, I would say that in certain types of AI, um, you should start embracing it because it's gonna it's gonna help your business. So, for example, um, you know, whenever the things that frustrate me when I call up on a phone and I talk, as I say it, I talk to a computer. Mm -hmm. You know. But really, that saves the company. The computer can answer a lot of my questions. Yeah. It's just when it can't that I get frustrated with it. So at a very simple level, if I'm calling the bank and I need to check my bank account for whatever reason that I can't do it on a computer, whatever bot answers the phone can probably do it for me. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that that's a at that level, those kind of things are easier to embrace than others and get you used to thinking that. Okay, this somebody's going to ask this machine a question, and it's going to answer it. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, maybe it's all very simple, but you know that's a form of artificial intelligence, and it's not something to be afraid of. But as we progress down the road, <clears throat> and these um, artificial intelligence gets more and more capability, that's when <clears throat> what worries me is the ethical side of it, mm -hmm. because. Um, there's a lot of unethical behavior in business. Mm -hmm. There's unethical behavior, you know, in the militaries, mm -hmm. there's unethical behavior in governments mm -hmm. and that's without artificial intelligence. Yeah. So now I've got more capability. And if my, and if my bent is to be unethical, I've got, I can be really unethical. That's one side of it. The other side that worries me is as artificial intelligence becomes more and more capable and whether it ever becomes really self-aware or sentient, you know, what kind of, but even before that, when it's in the decision-making process and making decisions, what ethical basis is it using in that programming or in that learning to come up with a decision? And well, that, those kind of things worry me. Yeah, that well, that's what I'm looking at right now is the which countries 
are actually instituting regulations. And I think there's a few countries in Western Europe who have, you know, who yep. have adopted some. Uh, and I think, you know, my prediction is that the it's going to be autocracies versus democracies. And the autocracies will have little to none uh, regulations uh, just so they can use the technology in any which way they want to, to, uh, you know, to consolidate even more power. Uh, where democracies, I think, will put, um, you know, put limitations on AI uh, so that power is more evenly distributed. Uh, because it is it, it, it is such a unique type of technology. Yeah. So, but in you know with those you know to to you know to to be a leader in in this age because we're just on the cusp of it right now, uh, and people are recognizing that they probably have to change, and if they don't recognize they have to change, they probably won't. Right. So probably. I think, and there's know, a lot that won't. Right. You know, just because there's you know there's there's you know, psychological forces of resistance already built in. But, you know, what do you think are some of the leadership skills, you know, that you acquired over your career that would be, um, that would be, you know, appropriate for leaders to start looking at? Uh, and, you know, humility is one and, you know, the ability to collaborate, but, you know, you already mentioned, you know, getting people together, uh, you know, to think critically and creatively. And I'm wondering if there's you know, really anything else. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, those are, those are, those are the, those are some of the big ones. Um, I go back to uh, um, trust and relationships. So those are my, my top two on, on a leadership philosophy mm -hmm. uh, deal. But I think the other thing is that we have to, we have to have some ethical boundaries there and I think that we need to start talking about them more mm -hmm. because you have the as this starts you have the capability to transcend boundaries that have been sacrosanct for you know years. Um, if you look at the you know I was reading a, another book and um, if you look at the Internet of Things, mm -hmm. if you look at the number of cameras that are around the world today, if you look at how some nations are putting AIs on on those surveillance systems. If you look at self-driving cars, you know, there's, it comes to a point where there's not really a lot of privacy in your life anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, hopefully nobody's looking at you in all of those places and seeing all the stuff you're doing, but you don't know that anymore. If you have cameras in your houses, if you have cameras on your computers, like mm -hmm. we're talking to right now, mm -hmm. if you have, it's on your phone. People can turn phones on from different different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and then just how much you share, yeah. you know, out there now on the internet, that's going to be, that's going to become even more in the future. And unscrew some nations are actually working in that direction on purpose, like China. Mm -hmm. You know, they're working on facial recognition they're working on surveillance systems and they're working on um, self-driving cars. And that's the three prongs of their attack on AI. That's how they're trying to, so that they can, you know, watch their citizens and make sure the citizens are doing the right China thing. Mm -hmm. This is all done by the CCP in China. Mm -hmm. And it's to a point where, you know, even the kids that come over here on student exchanges, mm -hmm. they have this with them. Yeah, the phone. And this monitors their activities. Mm -hmm. And every day they get a grade on their citizenship of China. Mm -hmm. How good a citizen were you today? They get a grade on it based on where they went yeah. and what they might have done or said. Yeah. Yeah. Now you talk about intrusive. Oh, yeah. But but we're, you know, in the U.S., you know, we we go up and get our picture. You know, we get our pictures taken every time we get on an airplane now. Yeah, we do all kinds of things. So this the world is just all changing. And I just think it the ethical side of it needs to be more and more stressed in companies around the world. Now, what do I think 
the chances of that are. I think the companies that are doing it now will probably do it more in the future. And the companies that don't really care about that stuff won't adopt it until there's some kind of big leadership change or some kind of societal change that, that makes it happen. You mentioned trust, you know, how important that is. And instead of asking you, how do you build trust? What do you see in other leaders that you've been around who fail to develop trust? What, you know, what were their blocks, what they, what they did, what they didn't do. So I have a, when I talk about leadership, um, I have kind of a series of things I go through and and I start with relationships and trust. Mm -hmm. And I start with relationships because that was one of, that was one of my failures as in leadership positions and where I didn't do as good a job as I should have is building relationships with, you know, folks that I worked with you know, above peers and below. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, so I, and I, as I reflect back on, you know, my life, that's where I could have done a lot better and been more effective and, and made those organizations much more effective if I had worked better on relationships. And then I go through a series of things, but the last thing I say is I say, my last tenant of leadership is don't be an asshole. And the reason I say that is because everybody will s- sit up and listen to, they'll say, the guy says asshole, mm-hmm. you know, that, that n- people don't normally say that when they're given a spiel on something. Yeah. But again, yeah. yeah, because it's just not a word that's, mm-hmm. you know, even though people use it, you know, they'll walk out the door and say it, they just don't hear it from a stage. Right. All of a sudden people pay attention. Then I say, well, so let me define that. And I said, say, if you're from the United States of America, you've had a working relationship with that word since probably the fourth grade, Mm -hmm. like it or not. Mm -hmm. So take what you think and add these kind of things to it. I said, assholes, they're exclusive. They're not inclusive. Mm -hmm. Assholes berate people in public, not in private. Assholes are all about me not about the mission, Mm -hmm. you know, and I go through a series of other things. And I said, and the reason I came up with that and, and I started using it in my, my discussions probably in the early uh, 2000s is I had seen for the last 20 to 25 years, a series of people that were like that. And they were, they were successful, you know, by probably almost every definition in the military. And it was just, it was abhorrent to me. I couldn't, you know, they just trod all over people and they, them taking on AI would be okay. Just what's in it for me. So they're there. That company is either a person like that. It's not going to use it because I'm not going to let you convince me, or it's going to use it in ways that probably aren't the most ethical. Yeah. You know, survey after survey shows that the, the 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 number one skill that middle managers need and they need a lot of skills right because of you know, where they are in the organization um you know within the hierarchy is communication because just like you said you know they got to communicate on top uh, you know below uh, you know across and outside and and so if they are perceived as an asshole then it shuts down communication. Absolutely. Okay. So how do you take, you know, have you seen somebody go from, you know, more of a self-directed person to now somebody who's actually much more humanistic and, and outward focused? Um, obviously not many since I'm thinking I'm running through a... <laughs> Back in my head. Um, I think there's some people that have changed along the way, but I haven't seen a lot at a very high level mm-hmm. change, mm-hmm. you know, well, this and, is- or, or I've seen people evolve more from, you know, the leadership qualities that I respect the most into being more insular and removed. Well, um, because they just they think that they have so much pressure on them and they can't you don't really 
you don't really understand my problems and, mm-hmm. you know, don't talk, you don't know what I'm going through and I just got to do it this way. Yeah. Yeah. Because in a, in a, in a, in some ways it's understandable because, you know, after like, you know, I'll talk in the military, you know, or in any business, you get up at the VP level, there's stuff that's going on. You might have your, your span of control is enormous. Mm-hmm. And so you've got all of these things happening with you and you're trying to sort out, you know, what can I do? And if you're the person that thinks you have to do it all, instead of empower people to, to do, you know, better than you could do it, then you're going to, that's what happens. People can't let go of, I got to know everything that's going on and I got to be able to, you know, control that. Some of that is because their bosses require them to know everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And so that's, so they get into, into a, you know, an endless loop out of this and they, so I'd say it's, you know, I see more people developing in that direction than developing in yeah. the other direction. But that's the point of the book is that AI will know all that now. Right. Okay. Right. So, so now you can shift that energy from knowing all that to all this other stuff. And uh, there are many things I took from, you know, the Hessen Ludwig book, uh, but two really, you know, top the list is one was the differentiation between modesty and humility. But the second one was about basically learning. And so, you know, the personal repeatable learning is required where beliefs are constantly stress tested against an ever-changing environment and adapted to reflect a new reality. It's not efficient. It's hard and emotionally messy. But the bottom line is beliefs drives behaviors. And you had this belief in, you know, within you that said, you know, these people know more than me and I need them to challenge my mental model. And that's really what the mental models are, is a set of beliefs. And so what you're talking about, you know, the people who failed to acquire trust, they never asked, you know, they, they never asked anybody to challenge their beliefs. Right. But now, because the machines will know all the other stuff, now you do have time to actually stress test those beliefs that are actually holding, you know, basically that's creating what I call friction from accomplishing the mission. Totally agree with you. Yeah. Totally agree with you. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, to, to, you know, to acquire these, these skills, right. It seems like, you know, Technology has a way to dehumanize and humanize organizations. Okay. And effective people find a way. And that's how, that, that's the way I see how you've been able to progress your career where other people, you know, got stuck. They started in the same place where you were. Okay. But then they got stuck someplace. And so it's one thing to say, okay, you know, we need to be more humanistic. We need to be more collaborative. We need to, you know, better, you know, through that we can be become more creative and more collaborative. But what I'm always interested is in the obstacles. Right. Okay. And, you know, so I, I look at, so there's a couple, when I was thinking about this, I thought of two presidents, you know, and um, one's Abraham Lincoln and you can go read about Abraham Lincoln and, you know, failed at this, failed at this, failed at this, you know, all this series of failures. And then he became president, mm-hmm. you know, and, and was, was the president. Yeah. So I think about that and I think, and people say, you know, it's not the failures that are going to find your life. You know, you just, it's, you learn from them and you move on, but there's just a lot of people that don't want to be Abraham Lincoln. They don't, they can't, they can't accept any of that failure. And so they play it much more safer and closer to the vest because they think that that's the way the least risk that's Mm going to progress them through their careers. So they're, uh, they're afraid of taking a risk. And then on another um, example, uh, Ronald Reagan's been in the news a lot lately because of the Reagan forum and some other things. And when he was the president, he basically focused on about three things. Mm-hmm. He said, here's the highest, you know, it's the hardest job in the world. He's the most, you know, arguably the most powerful person in the world. But he says, hey, I'm going to, I, I, 
only have 24 hours in a day, just like everybody else. Here's the top three things I'm going to focus on. And he, whatever that was, and that changed over his presidencies, but, you know, he wasn't trying to run everything, mm-hmm. but he was demanding on his people because they had to, you know, they had laid out a path and they had to produce to keep moving down that path. Mm-hmm. Well, probably one of the people most responsible for bringing humanism into not just the the business consciousness, but into you know the collective consciousness was Peter Drucker, and he would you know write and talk extensively about you know managers get things done, leaders get get the right things done. Yes. And that's, you know, how you actually identify priorities that's actually going to move the needle, I think, is one of the key leadership skills that anybody can have. But that, you know, but humility folds into that because, you you know, most people will need to, you know, to get some other, other, you know, other perspectives, what the authors call otherness. Right. You Correct. Know? Correct. And you have to have it. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of people run into, so now you run into a boss that's not this ideal leader that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you work with that boss? And, you know, this is, these are, I, you know, I reflect back on, you know, all of my career and stuff. And one of the ways I think is it's all about the relationship you have with them. And this isn't about being a brown noser, but you have to understand what your boss is motivated by. And you have to understand what his or her boss is motivated by, you know, a couple levels up. Mm-hmm. So you need, need to understand what pressures they're under, how they're approaching their job, what they think is important, what their priorities are. And maybe, you know, if you spend some time figuring that out and working with those people or people around them that can help you with that, then you can say, well, you know, actually we're aligned in a lot of different areas, but we might just be misaligned in, in different ones. And so work on what you're aligned with and try to help with the other ones as best you can. Yeah. And if those the limits of your value system. Yeah. And if those motivations of your leaders are more selfless and self-directed rather than being mission directed, uh, my advice is to get out of there as quickly as possible. <laughs> there is that. Yeah. So, but when we're talking about, I don't argue, and I don't argue with that either. Yeah. Um, Because it's, you know, you're just going to end up being manipulated and then that's what you learn. And so you learn to manipulate other people. And, you know, all of a sudden the mission is, 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 is never a consideration. Right. Right. So it'll get done as long as I get my way. Yeah. But when you, you know, when you're talking about, you know, what gets in people's way, it r- really what it comes down to is a person's identity. All right. And, you know, are they growth oriented or are they do they have a fixed mindset? And, and if they don't think they can change or they don't think they want to change and growth goes out the window, well, then you know, they, they're going to continue to you know, fail to get, get gather the trust that they need, you know, to to accomplish the mission, and then they realize, you know, that they're fighting against eighty percent of of their crew, right? Because you know they got the front row guys, okay, right, right, but that's all they have, right? and so you're not going to get enough human capital to propel you to to accomplish the mission, and then you know then it becomes a blame game where the leader says, well, this is what's wrong with the team. So no, you set that up because of your, you know, be, because of your 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 lack of being growth oriented, and not being willing to reach out and get, uh, you know, the collaboration that you're, you know, that that you really need to do this. Right, and if you you can be successful, mm-hmm. you know, being that kind of person, you can get ten percent profit this year or this quarter. And maybe you can do it, you know, for, for a while, but you don't, nobody's asking the question, Hey, if you just altered the way you approached this and reoriented your team, maybe you could get 13% or 15%. Mm -hmm. Maybe your team has ways that would be, that could help you get even more on what you're graded on. If you let them, if you empower them, if you trust them. That but but the, that kind of person won't let go. 
and I'm getting 10%. People love me upstairs for that. I'm good. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to risk anything else. So don't come to me with anything. Yeah. And that's, you know, the fear, you know, the fear of failure is the still, fear of failure is, is inner directed rather than, well, if I try this, what can we gain out of it, whether we succeed or not, you know, to yeah. help accomplish the mission. So, so, you know, this, I read in this other book I was reading, you know, the three biggest factors on, you know, inhibitors on, uh, integrating AI into your business or imagination, management, and implementation. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you're that guy that we're talking about, mm -hmm. you're, you're in every one of those categories in a bad way. Yes, I agree. And if you, if you're the guy that, that they write about in humility, then you're, you're, you're building you're going to take down all of those barriers because you know that you have to have people help you yeah. do the imagination, the management and the implementation. And even before AI is fully adopted, it's already been proven that those characteristics are career derailers. Right. You know? Right. So we could uh, continue this conversation, Bert, uh, you know, forever because of, how deep not you know how the breadth of ai but also how deep humanism goes so uh i want to thank you for your time i do uh encourage uh, the listeners to uh, read uh, the hessen ludwig book it's called humility is the new smart rethinking human excellence in the smart machine age so uh, bert thank you thank you again and uh, i certainly appreciate uh you taking the time to be on the X Factor. Likewise, Steve. Really appreciate it. It's great talking to you today. You as well. All right, everybody. We'll see you on the next time on the X Factor. <laughs>